When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply building machines that touch the sun. I'm Tanya Hall and joining me is Dr. Justin Casper, Deputy Chief Technology Officer at BWX Technologies and Principal Investigator for NASA's Sunrise Mission and the Parker Solar Probe Sweep Investigation. Welcome, Dr. Casper. Thank you for having me. So when did you realize that you were meant to build machines that would improve the safety of space exploration? Oh, wow. Uh, so I, I know exactly uh, what happened. I was in uh, fourth or fifth grade and I was watching the uh, Challenger mission with, with all my classmates. And you know, un unfortunately uh, uh, the mission was, a, was a, a big failure just about a minute in and uh, it was really interesting. A lot of the people in the in space and the generation before me talk about their Sputnik moment. Um, I think that was the moment where I got really interested in robotic exploration of the solar system and how to make exploration of the solar system safer for humans. So uh, it's basically been space and space design for me ever since. Your colleague, Dr. Nikki Fox, is a frequent guest and friend of the show. We've talked often about the Parker Solar Probe mission, but this is our first discussion about the SWEEP investigation. Explain SWEEP's purpose and tell us a little about the SWEEP instruments. Oh, I'd love to. So the goal of the Parker Solar Probe mission is to figure out how the sun's atmosphere is heated from the temperatures of the surface of the sun, which are about 6,000 degrees, up to temperatures about a thousand times hotter, like a million degrees uh, and more. If we could understand the physics that's responsible for that, we could predict space weather like solar flares that can pose a threat to humans and robots in space. Um, but also the physics that happens there is really closely related to the physics of nuclear fusion. And so if we could understand that, maybe we can unlock a, a whole new source of clean, uh, low carbon power. So we really want to understand that. And we've been studying the sun remotely for decades, more than half a century from space. Uh, but we still haven't figured out what exactly it is. You know, is it waves, uh, magnetic fields? How is that atmosphere actually heated to really high temperatures? So the purpose of Parker Solar Probe is to plunge through the sun's atmosphere repeatedly. Every few encounters with the sun, the spacecraft actually flies past Venus, um, slows down a little bit, and then it plunges even closer to the sun. And each time we pass by the sun, we try to scoop up samples of the solar atmosphere we measure the magnetic fields and the electric fields, radiation at the same time. We try to figure out what exactly is going on to heat the uh, solar corona. So the purpose of the sweep investigation is actually do that scooping. We have instruments on the side of the spacecraft that are in the shadows that stay nice and cool, you know, kind of room temperature, even when we're really close to the sun. Uh, but unfortunately, if we only took measurements from the side of the spacecraft, we never actually see all the material that's flying straight off the sun. We call that the solar wind. And so we had to create an instrument called the solar probe cup, which actually stares straight at the sun during these encounters. So the solar probe cup gets up to temperatures of uh, 
you know, nearly 1500 degrees Celsius, the instrument glows orange while it's scooping up solar samples. Um, and so designing that was an incredible challenge. We had to figure out uh, how to use some of the rarest alloys and, and crystals in the world to operate at high voltages and high temperatures and still make a really precise measurement of how fast the wind's flowing, what it's made of, what its temperature is. And we've had incredible uh, results coming from SWEEP uh, from the start of the mission. And you know we're only halfway through getting ever closer to the sun. So it's been really exciting. How is the data gathered by SWEEP instruments transmitted back to Earth? Oh, that's a great question. There, so there are a bunch of challenges. It's really hot close to the sun. So the instruments have to be able to survive those temperatures, right? But also when we start approaching the sun and it's about 11 days from the beginning to end of each of our encounters. If you're familiar with an astronomical unit, that's the distance from the sun to the earth. An encounter we say begins when we cross below a quarter of an astronomical unit. Then we'll get as close as maybe 4% of an astronomical unit uh, away from the surface of the sun. Uh, during that time, the spacecraft actually retracts its high gain antenna. So the antenna doesn't get vaporized uh, during closest approach. If any part of the spacecraft behind the heat shield saw direct sunlight, uh, it would be incinerated in a fraction of a second. Um, so we have a computer on board that's kind of like sweeps brain um, and it writes data to file as we measure, make measurements. So the instruments collect samples of the solar wind and the solar corona. They measure how many particles are moving in different uh, directions at different energies. And they basically put those in files marked by time. Uh, and then 11 days later, we pop out on the other side of the sun, the high gain antenna, find, you know, unfurls, finds Earth, and we basically get little like thumbnail snippets of data. We can kind of see a high level uh, summary. And so we all sit there eagerly waiting for the data to come down. Uh, and then what we can do is we basically highlight the really interesting periods, uh, like, oh, what was that gust? You know, why did the magnetic field get really strong there? Why were there waves during that period? And we highlight those periods, and then the instrument plays them back uh, at very high resolution for us. Um, so every encounter with the sun, we go through this kind of hand selecting the interesting periods and then replaying it uh, down to earth. From the here and now to the future, tell us about your other projects responsibility, NASA's okay. sunrise mission. You just yeah. reached a major milestone there, right? That's right, we did. So. Earth is surrounded by uh, an upper atmosphere that's slightly charged called the ionosphere. And uh, if, if you like shortwave radio, the ionosphere is really important because you can bounce shortwave radio transmissions off of the ionosphere and talk to people on you know, the other side of the Earth by bouncing back and forth. Uh, so it's really helpful that way. But it means the Earth's ionosphere absorbs or blocks low frequency radio waves coming from the sun or anywhere else uh, in the universe. And 50 years ago, or more, when we started going into space, people put very simple antennas on some satellites. And what they discovered is every now and then the sun will give off a low frequency radio burst. I'm talking frequencies of like one megahertz, 10 megahertz, uh, much lower frequencies than like your Wi-Fi or your cell phones. Um, and those waves can't make it through to Earth. But when you're on a satellite in space, uh, the sun will briefly outshine the rest of the universe. Sometimes it'll be a thousand or a million times brighter than everything else in the sky in this frequency range. And there are all sorts of different kinds of solar radio bursts. But one thing we noticed is there's a, a type of solar burst. I won't go into the details too much. We call it the type two solar burst. Uh, and a fascinating thing about these type two bursts is 
you never see a major radiation storm at Earth, like energy, energetic particles produced by solar flares and uh, another type of phenomena called coronal mass ejections. You never see one of those big radiation events unless the sun gives off one of these low frequency radio bursts. And the burst usually happens 20, 30 minutes before the energetic particle radiation is created. We have no idea why this is the case. We have some theories. Uh, one thought is there's an eruption at the sun. It's expanding away from the sun. And for some reason, it starts to accelerate particles to lower energies, uh, but to give them a little bit more energy and that generates radio waves. And then things get even stronger and you start accelerating the really dangerous uh, energetic particles. So what we wanna do with sunrise is make images of those radio bursts for the first time. Instead of one antenna, we need a lot of antennas so we can make an image. And if we can see what part of the solar eruption is producing those radio bursts, maybe we can figure out where particle acceleration starts near the sun and come up with a way to provide an early warning. So if you have an astronaut on the way to the moon or on the way to Mars, or if you're a spacecraft operator, we can give you 20 or 30 minutes advance warning. There's about to be a big radiation storm. You've got 20, 30 minutes to take shelter. That could actually make a really big difference. How on earth do we test and validate designs and equipment that will eventually end up touching the sun? How and where do we actually recreate those conditions? Oh, that, that's great. One of the slogans that NASA has that we live in uh, by every day is, um, test as you fly and fly as you test. So when at all possible, you know, there's, there's very little opportunity to pull off to the side and, and repair your spacecraft if you did something wrong after launch, right? Especially, you know, solar probe is orbiting close to the sun. Our sunrise mission is going to be up past geosynchronous satellites. Uh, there aren't uh, crewed missions to those locations. So we have to do a lot of testing on the ground to make sure things will survive. When we're looking about the um, solar probe mission, the challenges there, we're figuring out how to reproduce the really high temperatures and the bright sunlight we see. Uh, at closest approach, the sun's about 500 times brighter than it is near Earth. So surfaces get just phenomenally hot. Uh, we started out initially doing testing at the world's largest solar furnace, which is in the Pyrenees in southern France. So imagine a mountainside covered in mirrors. The mirrors all take sunlight and focus it onto a big parabolic lens that's about seven stories tall built into the side of a building. And then all that sunlight gets focused into a small vacuum chamber where we put uh, initial prototypes of our instrument. Uh, later on, we need to be able to simulate multi-day encounters with the sun. And unfortunately, the sun itself has this habit of setting on Earth, so we couldn't use the solar furnace. Uh, we bought a bunch of basically used IMAX film projectors, uh, and we set them up in, uh, next to a big vacuum chamber where we could put the instrument inside and dial in a trajectory around the sun, and then it would glow brighter and brighter to simulate getting close to the sun uh, and then move away. And then at the same time, we had a particle accelerator that could simulate the energy of radiation escaping from the sun, the solar wind, and we could measure, and, and our, our little instrument would sit there and be like, oh yeah, yep, yeah, I measured the wind's gusting up in speed, down, you know, I don't care about the temperature, I'm fine. Um, and that's what gave us the confidence uh, to know that we could launch and survive plunging through the sun's atmosphere. What's it like working years and even decades on a project that's never been done before? How much patience does it take to wait for a successful outcome? It takes a lot of patience. Uh, and, and I think one of the ways to, I recommend to kind of stay sane or, or keep your, your focus and motivation is to try to work at a couple projects 
that are at different stages at the same time. So when I started in graduate school, I was working on a spacecraft called Wind that was launched in the 1990s. It was working, plenty of data, you know, you could play around, you could, you could do science. At the same time, I was starting to think about new missions like Parker Solar Probe. Um, and even back then, I was starting to think about our Sunrise mission. Um, and then Parker Solar Probe eventually happens. We start building it. It takes about 10 years from start of the mission to launch. Um, so, you know, there's a ton of testing and design work that has to go in before you can build uh, the flight hardware and get to see it go into space. It, it's, a, it's a very unusual career that way with that kind of time scale. Well, we wish you and all of our friends at NASA the best of luck on these and all their other missions. H how can we follow Parker and Sunrise? Oh, excellent. Well, so if, you, if you're on Twitter, uh, I like to tweet a lot about um, recent observations and what the spacecraft are up to. Uh, you can follow me at Justin C. Casper uh, at Twitter, and that's a, that's a good way to get little uh, inside scoops, like when we're making contact with the spacecraft or when we're starting one of our dives past the sun. Dr. Justin Casper, Deputy Chief Technology Officer at VWX Technologies and Principal Investigator for NASA's Sunrise Mission and the Parker Solar Probe Sweep Investigation. Thanks again for joining us, Justin. Thank you. And find and subscribe to more of my interviews right here on all the major podcast platforms under the Tanya Hall Innovation Show and at tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.